without rebels and without characters, these sports would never have gone anywhere. And every single one of them has had its share of characters and it's influenced the lifestyles of people now. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mountain Cosmos. I'm your host Rochelle Gilmore, a ski instructor and all-round mountain-loving person and this podcast is about capturing the many different facets of mountain life. Some of you may remember a few weeks ago I read out a story from an old snowboarding magazine, The Snowboarder's Edge, which was produced in the late 1980s. I announced that occasionally I would read out a story from these magazines. Well, the story I read out, Why Don't You Come Over, was written by Peter Robbo. And in this episode, I have a chat with him. Peter was the first person to import snowboards to Australia from Burton and Tom Sims. And he was one of the people who had a pivotal role in bringing snowboarding to Australia. It was a pretty enlightening chat which captures some more Australian snowboarding history. But for those of you overseas, we don't just talk about Australia. Anyway, let's get into the chat and I really hope you enjoy it just as much as I did. Talking to you at the lounge room of my house here near the beach at Osiger in southwest France. Um, I'm speaking to Rochelle today because we've crossed paths through this uh, infinite web called snowboarding and snow sports. And she's spoken recently to a couple of guys I knew quite well years ago. One of them was Ashley Muller and the other one was Thor Prohaska. Uh, since then, we've uh, crossed paths on a couple of things. And so we're having a podcast today in my honour. Where do I start with all this? Wow. For those of you who don't know me, I'm I'm actually going to be 63 at the end of this year. That's in the body, but in the head, I think you always stay about 23, to be honest. So um, there's hope for all of you. I like that. I am like so stoked that I got you on the show because it felt like such a long shot when I uh, read that little story out the other week. So, Peter, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to any of my other podcasts, but the thing that I ask everyone at the start of every interview is what do you love about about the mountains? Like, what is the draw for you? I don't really know that much about you yet, but I know that you've had quite a bit of history with the mountains in Australia and overseas and... Yeah, to maybe tell me a, bit, a little bit about that. Well, for me, it's pretty simple. Uh, the mountains, it's, uh, it's as big a question as they are themselves, I guess. But I don't know, I always remembered the buzz of walking around in the ski village at night as a kid in the moonlight and the stars after a fresh snowfall. You know, the little crystals floating around in the air and that scrunching noise you get under your boots walking around, trudging around through it all. That's one of my first images I remember. I was about probably six or seven years old walking around the old village at Mount Buller and uh, it never went away. Every time I you sort of, uh, there's been periods when I've not been in the mountains and I go back, it takes me all of a few minutes. I think, God, why did you ever leave this stuff? You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a magical wonderland I've always found and uh, most countries in the world have got a version of it and uh, there's an infinite list and you will never get to them all. So, um, no, it's... Uh, it's been like that. It got into my blood very early. I suppose I was about six years old. I started uh, skiing with my dad up at Dingo Dell at Mount Buffalo one day back in about 1963. He'd never skied. We rented a pair of skis. I stood on the back of them. He strapped the nutcracker around his waist, which was like a device which sandwiched the rope 
toe that was going to pull you up the hill over the pulley. So he and I headed off up the hill on that and laughed and chuckled all the way up and pretty much laughed and chuckled the whole way down. And, and that was it. We made it down to the bottom without any major crashes. So uh, I was gone after that point and it's, it's, it's been a non-stop story with the snow ever since. Uh, the early days for me were all about skiing. We were lucky. We got one of the early apartments at Mount Buller, one of the early career apartments, which overlooked Mount Sterling at the entrance to the ski resort there. And I grew up as a ski rat all over the mountain, learning to ski with two ski schools, uh, the French and the Austrians. And this was also when Buller was the only resort in the world to have two separate lift companies. One was Orange and one was Blue. So not only you have to pick which ski school, but you had to pick which lift company. And Orange was better in the good weather. Blue was better in the worst weather. Uh, we sort of played it like that and, uh, yeah, did all the usual things with ski schools and winning races and medals and all that sort of business. And then skiing plateaued a little bit for a while. And then I sort of, uh, one day was at Buller and I saw the Peter Stuyveson Freestyle Tour and I watched the Moguls event and I think it was held on Federation. I just went, oh, wow, i got to do that. So it was, if you like, the, the snowboarding of its time, freestyle skiing, when it appeared in Australia in the late 70s, early 80s. And it was very American and Canadian influenced. It wasn't traditional European influence of racing. So it had this cool, it had this sort of chic about it because all the guys talked different, they looked different, they could do different things with tricks and flips and jumps and just the whole attitude. They'd be smoking a joint on the chairlift. You know, they uh, they just had a good time, and it was just really attractive to the kids growing up on the back of the race year, I think. So before I knew it, I was part of it. I, I, I skied in it for three years and made the finals at Threadbow one year. So I was happy with that. And it was right around that time that um, I did my first trip to America and I went to Colorado and Jackson Hole, strangely enough, because I believe that's where you've spent some time. Really opened my eyes for the first time about skiing. You know, wow, to see all this amazing terrain. And, and for me, I was, I was gone at that point. Skiing is, was always a very big part of my life. But um, I think somewhere around the late the mid-90s, uh, it plateaued out. Ski design hadn't changed. Uh, um, nothing was really going anywhere. And then they start to take an influence back from snowboards, which were being produced at the time. And effectively, what they've made is too long snowboards under everyone's feet these days and uh, they ski way better, of course. But, yeah, snowboarding, uh, oh, that's, uh, as Richard Palmer said the other day, it's been a long, difficult birth for that sport. And I think back in the very early days when I started, there was probably somewhere around 50-odd snowboarders in the world and you sort of almost knew most of them. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a small uh, community. At least that's how the other guys have described it to me. Yeah, I don't know. It seems like such a fun thing. I mean, snowboarding just seems so obvious now, but you don't think that in the 80s, which is not really that long ago, that it was, you know, only really there was such a fight to be able to do snowboarding. Yeah, well, it, it was like skateboarding at the time. It, it, snowboarding became the outlaw sport, and especially the type of people that drew in the early days to it, which weren't your traditional ski people they were your surfers and your skateboarders and they had a very different attitude and a different mannerism and a different way they spoke and dressed and just a whole different flow to everything they did so when they started to arrive at the resorts the mountains didn't know really how to handle them very well so snowboarding took a, a, a fair period of time to get going essentially i think the, the big thing that held it back in the day was that um the production on snowboards and the design of snowboards was essentially fairly basic we're coming from skateboard world of steam bent plywood and fiberglass boards and trying to attach a P-Tex bottom to them. Um, it was only really when they stepped into the hands of the ski factories and got a space in there to manufacture a different design did 
the boards really evolve and now all of a sudden these boards could handle mountain conditions whether it didn't matter whether it's hard packed or powder so um, that was the revolution time right there when the, the skis went from the garages to the ski factories and started to be made properly because it revolutionized the capacity of these boards because before that they were pretty pretty wild ride you know it, uh, you only really took them out when the snow was good in the old days with these old wooden boards with two little fins on the back you weren't riding them on hard pack because you just were all over the shop so uh, they were really powder and deep snowboard days originally and um, no it was funny because uh, I was working as a an advisor for the Victorian government on Ski Victoria at the time and I took a break and I went walking down the street at lunchtime and uh, ended up in this news agency and I'm looking through the magazines and bingo all of a sudden on the news rack was this magazine called Action Now and on the front cover was Tom Sims blasting one of his snowboards down a run and the title to the magazine was Snowboarding Is This the Year and I went oh right and I start to flick through it and was just amazed the article inside so I I bought it and then there was still and there was still a couple of older issues on the magazine rack behind it so I took them as well and that was it that was when it all changed that was 1981 all of a sudden this sport went uh, into my head and I thought man that's so much fun so I contacted um, Burton and Sims via the mail order coupon ad in the back of the magazine the old school way and I don't know I suppose a couple of weeks later I received an info pack in the mail from both of them about price lists and gear and the sport and things and um, placed an order and uh, I thought damn this is one of the things I'm going to do and I formed Snowboards Australia which was my business name and uh, started importing boards and that was 1981. Wow and because getting all of the timing and everything right so you were bringing in snowboards and then Thor he was making them around that sort of time and yeah I don't know it all just seems like quite exciting I'll tell you about that look Thor's a pretty cool guy you'd, you'd look at him now and, and uh, think he's Mr. Politician for the seat of Dixon up in Queensland there which he is <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh, the other sides to Thor too which uh, were, were very funny days back in those days and first time I met him was up at Mount Buller I think he referred to this on your podcast earlier when you spoke to him he was up at Mount Buller and I saw this guy whizzing around on this snowboard with a pack on his back and I thought oh yeah so I stopped him and we spoke and um, I think this was like 1982 we were doing freestyle training at the time on near Bull Run I think and uh, I spoke to him and went back to our apartment we had a bit of time off we went back to our apartment looked at this board he'd made and I thought gee whiz look at this thing and uh, I had my Burton Backhill in the corner which is essentially a water ski with a rope is really what it really was and Thor had made this thing and he screwed all these millions of little metal edges all the way around the board and attached this P-Tex surface to the bottom of his board and it's about head high much bigger than the old boards that I had the little Burtons are only 135 a metre 35 centimetres long so they're not very long and Thor had this thing like a big winter stick and I just thought it was incredible and we got on famously and uh, our relationship started from there I wasn't snowboarding that much I mostly dragged my back hill around me in my with me in my ski bag and if the snow conditions were any good and we had time off from training or freestyling or whatever we were doing I'd take it for a blast down through the deep somewhere and uh, people used to laugh at it and what the hell is that thing and I remember being in a competition one time it was one of my first mogul competitions up in New South Wales and Nat Young was there with Randy Randy Weeman who was the boss of the Peter Stuyvesant freestyle tour and um, Nat Young being the famous surfer he was and stuff he spoke to me later on because I was ripping through the, the deep stuff next to the course a bit on the thing and saying other oh, things rubbish it'll ne- they'll never catch on da 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 and I said listen mate I think well 
for now they're basic, but I said one day these things are going to be full on. It's, it's, it's going to change a lot. And they're going to get good on these things. And uh, I still remember having a sort of quasi-argument with him about it. And a few years later, he was a total advocate of snowboarding and riding his winter stick in Utah and all these places. So I remember also when I went to Canada for the first time, that was 1982. The Americans had an attitude much like here in Australia um, with regards to snowboarding. Access was non-existent at most resorts in 1982. And I showed up at a, a resort in the Banff area. I think it was called uh, North Star, some name like that. Anyway, I go to get on the lift and the guy stopped me and said, where are you going with that? And I said, I'm going up there. And he said, no, you're not. And I said, well, why not? And he said, because what is it? And I said, well, it's a snowboard. And he said, well, hang on a minute, mate. You know. So I end up ringing the mountain manager. And anyway, I get on the phone with this guy and he's an, actually an Australian <laughs> who's managing the mountain. And he said, what the hell are you doing? Cause in trouble down. And I said, no. So I just showed up with this and they won't let me up the hill. And he said, look, I haven't got time to come down and look at this thing. But look, you can use the lower mid station of the chair and that's it. And, uh, so, right. so anyway, I could ride up at this place for, um, I don't know, rode for a couple of hours in the deeper stuff of Canada and people looking at me sideways, what's this thing, what's this thing? I, it had come from America originally in the board and I took it back a year later and uh, it was still completely unknown to my experience really in the days, early days of Canada, but uh, it changed quick in America and Canada. By the mid to late 80s, it had really started to catch on. So Fun times. And so you were saying just before that you had skied in Jackson Hole like early? Jackson Hole was the place. We we went on this tour. My dad could see I was I was actually very good at Australian rules football too and had my chance to play with Hawthorne back in the day, but I it didn't it didn't go. So but uh, I was also I was the sort of kid when I grew up. I was playing two matches of football on Saturday and then we'd fly up the mountain Saturday afternoon after the finish of the second game and get up there and we'd ski all day Sunday. I'd do my homework and then we'd come home real early first thing Monday morning and get dropped straight at school. So I did that for years as a kid, you know, so that with me was normal life. And uh, anyway, he, just before he passed, he, he said, look, oh, I'd never dated at that point. I was probably, how old I was? Um, 79. I was, uh, yeah, I was about 21, I guess. 2021 when I went on my first trip overseas, which is sort of old by today's standards, I guess. And the first stop was Vail, Colorado, and it was absolutely amazing. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. Vail had only been open, I think, a year or two at that point, so it was all brand new. I just couldn't believe the size of the mountains they had and the size of the resort and everything. Anyway, the next morning, got up bright and early, and I shot out the door, and beautiful sunny day, and I walked, started to walk across the courtyard, and it's like, God damn it's cold i was in my old aussie clothes i had a little jacket normal little gloves uh, the whole thing and uh oh, i was just freezing so i just said to the other guys look i'll see you over the lift i'm going to pull into the first ski shop i can find and get some some, some warm gear so yeah i did that and that was my first experiences in, in america and it was fantastic and at the end of our trip we ended up in jackson hole we thought we'd seen it all and then uh, we flew into jackson in a little ski plane and landed <laughs> on the runway there and it's full cowboy town back in the 70s and uh, cowboys and horses and cattle and one thing I'm thinking is this serious it looks like a movie set you know and there was also little private planes parked there at the, the runway it was a, coming a bit of a mini Aspen back then already and uh, we went out for our first ski and we teamed up with a guy called Victor Gerdon I think his name was and he was one of the coaches for the US ski team and he was based in Jackson Hole. Anyway, he took a shine to us, and I'd met Peppy Stiegler's family years before back in Australia, um, and uh, he was the guy that ran the ski school. So he assigned him to that guy to ski with us for the week, and he just took us everywhere. We just did everything, things I'd never dreamed of doing. He took us uh, through the Hobacks, which is that lovely big run down Jackson Hole from not far from where the cable car stops all the way to the bottom of the valley there, and that was just incredible. 
and then he took us off Corbett's Coolwa a couple of times as well. And uh, once you've done stuff like that, you never go back. It was just incredible. And he taught us how to ski deep snow. First time I ever wore a face mask to stop myself gagging on snow crystals in the air because there were so many of them. It was a blast. It was 1979, I think. And uh, I never forgot it. So uh, I went back a few times after that, of course. <laughs> I think Jackson's the kind of place where you never want to not go back. Oh, it's brilliant. It's a brilliant place. Because, you know, they had that certificate there for how many vertical feet you ski in your week holiday and things. So, I don't know, I think I got up around half a million vertical feet at Jackson Hole, which was quite good. I was happy with that. We had a crack at the, in the old days, we used to have a powder eight contest over in Cody Bowl. We had a crack at that one year. And then we skied with a bloke and we went over to Grand Targhee, which is just nearby. And there were some photographers there doing some stuff for the mount. So they took some photos of us skiing around, uh, being the late seventies, wearing all these really bright colors and stuff. So I ended up having a, a poster. One of my pictures is a poster for Grand Targhee uh, about a year later, I think. So that's quite funny. I love Targhee. It's quite a fun little place to go. So you're quite into surfing. Is that right? Like, were you always a surfer? I didn't start surfing super young. I, but I was typical of my generation. I um, probably started surfing when I was around 11, 11 years old. Uh, it was 19, like 1971 or something. Surfing was completely unfashionable at the time. If you were a surfer, you were considered a dropout, a deadbeat, a no-hoper, uh, because that was the image. That was where surfing was at at the time. It had fallen out of the, the days of Midget Farrelly and Nat Young and bushy, bushy blonde hairdos and was traversing into a more difficult period around the 70s when things like alcohol and partying and drugs were becoming more present and the whole hippie movement was really taking foot. People wanted to live counterculture. They didn't want to live in cities. They want to live on an old house on the land in the country and raise chickens and make their own clothes and smoke weed and build their own surfboards. And that was that whole time. And um, surfing was very unglamorous at, at, at that time in terms of a media image. But once you did it, and once you kind of got to know a few of those guys, they were so charismatic, even though they were completely out there as individuals. It was just a hook. You you, you, you had to do this thing. And uh, I spent a long, long time surfing. I surfed for probably nearly 50 years all around the world. I went with that all around the world at times. And uh, the spots I've pulled into and things I've done with people, uh, they're just super rich memories. So I think anyone that's been in board sports, surfing, snowboarding, skateboarding, probably sailboarding, kiteboarding, all these things that take you to these amazing spots and that you share with individuals from all over the place, uh, they're really precious times. And um, I think it's, it's a wonderful time. If everyone could do something like that, there'd probably be way less problems in the world because people have got a different basis on which to communicate and spend time. And uh, there's nothing like any of those sports for, the changing someone's attitude about things it's quite funny i guess the whole connection i'm like starting to make a lot more connections with this whole i guess it was kind of like a movement i um literally just finished the rip curl book but it's about like the history of rip curl and oh, yes. they talk about how the founders of rip curl were like really into skiing and they're always up at mount buller and um oh, they were. <laughs> <laughs> Did you run into them at all? Oh, yes, uh, many times, many, many times. Yeah, Rip Curl's only down the road, and if you like, it's only three, you know, three, four hours from the snow. So Brian Singer, who was one of the partners of Rip Curl with uh, Doug Warbrick back in the, the original starting of Rip Curl, he was actually on the ski patrol at Mount Buller. That was his winter job. He was up at the ski patrol of Mount Buller, almost like the boss of it, for many years. And he was actually the guy I did my first snowboard demo in front of at Mount Buller in 1982. And they were super skeptical. 
I mean, I'm thinking, God's sake, Brian, loosen up. You're a surfer. You're probably skateboarder, and this is another thing, and there's going to be other things. You know, surely that's what Rip Curl was founded on, this sort of take it on with surfing, and now it's successful. You're becoming square and not even looking at snowboarding, you know. And uh, anyway, I convinced them. I got the mountain management to come, and they stood out on Burke Street at Mount Buller. There was, I don't know, six or seven of them, and Brian Singer from Rip Curl, who was the ski patrol guy, was there. And, and they said, okay, now we want to see you ride some lifts. And I said, well, this is going to be tricky because I said, because we've been banned and chased off the hill and not allowed to go anywhere, none of us have had any practice riding a lift. So it was quite interesting because in those days there weren't many chairlifts. Nearly everything were drag lifts, pommers or T-bars. And if you've ever tried to ride a pommer on a snowboard, it's gnarly because it, you put that pole and disc down between your legs and you brace for it because you know it's going to jerk you like they always do. And yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting. But I still managed to put in a decent demo. They still put it into mothballs for another seven years. And it was only when we kicked the literally kicked the doors off the resort in 1989 with this big snowboard event did things really change. And that was right around the time Thor was starting to have proper progress with the snowboard riders of Victoria. But I've always been impatient. I've been doing this thing for so long and I could see them bogging down. And we just decided to put on this massive event up at Mount Buller and uh, it changed everything. We got the television there, we got the radio there, the resort was stoked in the publicity. Had all these wild characters there from all over Australia snowboarding and doing their things in, in competition. And uh, that for me was, that year was sort of like the real spark to really get it going in Victoria especially and particularly change the mentality of uh, Mount Buller. And, um, and from then on, it, it's never looked back. It's so exciting making the connection between the sports. And when I was listening to that part in the Rip Curl book about, because Thor had mentioned that there was all these surfers that went into snowboarding and then how that didn't make sense. And it's just really funny to like make the connection of like who was there. And I really like that. Well, I'll tell you a funny story. This goes back to when I very first started with Snowboards Australia. I had this job where I was working with the government with Ski Victoria at the time and, and marketing and tourism and things. But this other thing was getting hold of me underneath, you know. Yet there seemed no logical way to make any business out of it because no one was snowboarding, no one ever knew what it was. Something was talking to me. So anyway, as I said, I, I, I responded to this information that was sent by Burton and Sims at the time and I got Jake to send a small pack of boards out. So he sent me half a dozen boards or so. And anyway, um, they landed at Essendon Airport, which used to be the, the big airport for Melbourne, but then once they built Tullamarine, Essendon became the cargo airport. So anyway, I had to go out to there and I go out there and find the hangar where my stuff is and I'm greeted by these customs officials and uh, they said, mate, you owe duty on this stuff. And I said, what do I owe duty for? And they said, because protection of local industries. And I said, there's, there's no local industry for snowboards in Australia. What are you talking about? And they said, we think they're water skis, mate. And I said, they're not water skis, they're snowboards. What's snowboarding? Who's ever heard of that? So I had this debate with them for about half an hour. They wanted to hit me with like almost double the, the price for the boards. And the only thing that saved the deal was in fact was that Jake in the designs also printed the word snowboard physically onto the deck of the board. So after much heated debate, they they relinquished the, the, the claim and said, okay, well, you can take your stuff. You're clear to go and get out of there. So I walked out of Essendon Airport with these six boards in cartons and put them in my car and uh, off I went, you know, and then... Uh, I thought, well, now what? So I rang up four of my surfing mates and our very first trip was to Mount Hotham. And the very first time we went up was 1980. This would have been the end of 1881. It was a grey day. It wasn't a very friendly day. It was early season. There was a bit of snow around. Only a couple of lifts were open. And we walked down this run from the, the road where we parked there. And we just started to walk up and down the hills there with these snowboards trying to get the hang of them at Hotham that afternoon. So uh, my friend lost his because they had no real security. So he just took off and went down through the trees and he had about an hour walk down into the 
gullies below to find the thing. The mountain guys came up to us and said, what are you doing? What are you, what's all this stuff? And we said, this is snowboards. And then he said, well, what's all that? And sort of tried to explain to them. He said, well, look, um, you can use this lift here. So we were allowed to ride the T-bar, the little T-bar. And we got the hanger going up and down, two of them on these boards on the T-bar. So if you like, Hotham, in a way, were kind of the coolest about of any of the resorts early in the early days. They made no decision about it. They didn't say yes, they didn't say no. You showed up, you were okay to go in a couple of spots with them. So at least it gave you a bit of a chance to get going. And those those four guys, uh, one day, I don't know if I ever write a list down, there was, who was it? It was uh, Warwick Stanford, uh, Peter Bottrell and John King. Myself, we went up to Hotham and tried these things out for the first day on a on a less than inviting day, and uh, sometime early July, I think it was in uh, 1981. Yeah, that would have been a lot of fun. So at the time, I guess you were both you were doing both. You were skiing and snowboarding. But what was the appeal for you with snowboarding? with everything that was going on it was different and as i'd skateboarded and surfed as a as a kid i thought you know i can relate to the sensation you've just got to have the right snow because in deep snow even the old wooden boards rode really well so no that that was still a lot of fun like that but i'd seen articles uh just prior to me starting i saw one in tracks magazine another one in surfing world i think it was by another aussie who's living around wollongong guy called richard palmer he ended up uh doing things with winter sticks back in in the very early days so and then i saw snow segment in an old surf movie at the town hall one time thought yeah that's pretty interesting but as i said it was really that magazine i saw i I sat down and read it and looked it on and thought well you know this is possible this is possible so but there were some funny days with all that because i ended up being the first distributor of burton snowboards outside of the usa at the time in 1981 so much so that uh jake actually rang my house where i was living with my mum at the time and i still remember mum going peter she's yelling down the hallway some american guy I called Jack on the phone, you know, it's like, oh, I'm going to answer the phone. And of course, it's Jake Burton. His actual real name is Jake Burton Carpenter. His actual family name is Carpenter. So, and we had a few phone calls from that time on. And he was always super interested in how it was going in Australia. What did we think of them? How are the conditions? Because conditions were tough. He knew it was a bit like the east coast of the USA in Australia. And we discussed all sorts of things. I'd already added another central fin to some models on, on ours. But I said to him, look, and I still remember the conversation. I said, look, I really get the feeling one day we make these things like they make skis in a ski factory and then we're going to be seriously onto something because the, the shape and the design's good it's just the materials are really limiting so probably would have been a, for a good couple of years after that that they stepped into the ski factories for the first time and started to manufacture snowboards which just revolutionized them completely all of a sudden you had a, a board that could perform and, and could handle the conditions the mountain dished up to you so and then uh, i was telling jake about an idea we'd had we were sick of falling out of these bindings all the time so i got a pair of my old race boots and we cut them down and we cut away everything that wasn't needed but we left the straps and we left the the cock of the, the, the boot and we literally screwed it to the board to see how it was and I guess uh, if you like it was kind of like one of the forefathers to the, the very common high back binding that most snowboards have on them these days. Jake was super interested in all that idea. He, he thought that was uh, very, very curious. So uh, maybe in some way we can take a bit of credit for having something to do with the design of high back bindings. I don't know. Wow. Were you guys friends? I feel like that probably would have been pretty big when we lost him a couple of years ago. Well, it was. it's a funny thing because nowadays with internet things, you can do Skype, you can do messaging, you can do all sorts of things and you can see the person. But Jake and I talked on the phone and we sent quite a few faxes back in the day to each other. 
Same with Tom Sims. And other than I met Tom Sims briefly in Santa Barbara one time years later. Other than that, I actually never physically met them or spent much time with them. We spoke a lot on the phone. We did things by mail and by letter, the old school way, because that's how it was back then. And that's how it operated. So uh, probably seems really primitive to people these days to hear all this, because, you know, if you saw an ad, you had to respond on a coupon and put it, go to the post office and stick it in an envelope and mail it to somewhere in the world and then wait for it to get a reply back. So, but I don't know, they're fun days too, all the anticipation of waiting for the post postman to arrive with the new stuff so it's actually very exciting with the mail the unpredictability of it i think people still love to get something in the mail you know i was stoked when thor sent me all those magazines it was exciting it's always good it's always a buzz except for those funny letters that look like bills or notices from the government for some reason oh the other week i got a letter and i was like oh no it's a speeding fine but it wasn't a speeding fine it was just my car rego much better than a speeding fine. <laughs> yeah, classic. Anyway, so... Yeah, but it was also funny because in, in 1982, it was really funny because that was probably one of the really busy years. I chucked all the gear in the back of my old Renault car and I did a snow trip all around the resorts, even into New South Wales, showing them boards and what it was all about, and snowboarding. And um, then I did the Melbourne Ski Show and had a thing called the Moving Mountain, which was like this thing wheeled on on a trailer, which was a slope. It's like a carpet slope that spins towards you. So towards the end of the show, I had a, I'd had a stand there for the first uh, time snowboards were represented at the ski show. I had a, a Snowboards Australia stand with Burton and, and uh, had some Sims stuff there too, I think. And anyway, the organiser said, do you want to put one of those things on the moving mountain and give us a bit of a demo at some point? So I said, yeah, sure. So I had to get the screwdriver out and unscrew the, because they had like two long metal keel fins on the back of the boards towards the back. So I had to take them off so the thing would be flat and slip and slide easily on the carpet. So having never put this thing on the carpet before, I thought this is going to be interesting. So, but no, it went okay. I showed people how you sort of slid one way, then the other way, and turned them back and forward, sliding this old Burton back hill on the carpet surface coming towards. So it was uh, people standing around with their mouths open, laughing and pointing, but a lot of curiosity too. And it was that ski show where I met a fair few people from the very early days who've stayed in it ever since. Um, they were curious and they came and visited me at the stand. And some of those guys were the first orders I had, and some of them are still snowboarding now. I, one of my first sales was to a guy called Ali Len who was a bit of a snow photographer too and he spent time with Thor and with Frank Penzis who created the snowboard magazine back in those days and I think he also had a winter stick from Richard Palmer up in Wollongong back in the very early days too so he was one of the very first guys into it Ali. No it was good I uh, while business business was slow with it I still always believed in the potential of this sport one day because in the 80s there wasn't much business and it was mostly through love and determination that you kept this thing going because there wasn't a whole lot of sales the shops didn't want to stock them uh, da, 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 da. so you had to be persistent and you had to have some belief. Huh? What do you think did it? What do you think made it? What was the point at which you think snowboarding really took off? See, because from the eyes of the snowboarders, there was nothing to convince us about. What you had to do was convince, firstly, the mountain managements, because that's really where most of the snow sports are going to go down. And they've got to be on board or it's never going to go. And then secondly, get it into the eyes of the general public. So more and more, we started to get snowboarding in front of their eyes. Um, I had good contacts at the Channel 9 back in the day. They used to run snowboarding things. They ran footage of our events They on Wide World of Sports, which were quite good because Mark Warren and the other guy used to be on it, Mark Warren, the old surfer. So they used to do a Wide World Sports Sports Sunday, I think it was mostly. Um, that helped. 
help because all of a sudden you've got millions of people looking at this thing for the first time. Anytime there was an activity or promotion, we got out there and did it. I was doing the pub and club scene in Melbourne for years with my Burtons in the back of the car and a gear in this little stand I'd rig up somewhere like the Melbourne Underground or over at, you know, BB's or up at uh, Bombay Rock or wherever I was at the time, you know, just take all this gear and all the boys thought it was pretty cool. So I got free space for that. But for me, if I have to put my finger on one thing, I think it was 1989 was the year for me that snowboarding really decided to get going in Australia. There'd been attempts, my early attempts in the early 80s, which sort of fell on deaf ears. And seven years later, we still had no real progress. But that was on the old boards. And then the boards had evolved nicely around the mid. By the late 80s, boards were really evolving. And uh, that just changed the performance of them. People could ride them. Girls were riding them. We started to do a lot more competitions and events. And then we managed to get a big event off at Mount Buller with Triple M, Rip Curl and Channel 9's Wide World of Sports to cover the thing. And it kind of put the resort of Mount Buller in a bit of pressure because two of them were already sponsors to the mountain. I'd been freestyling there and was associated with Team Buller back in their early days. And all of a sudden I said, well, okay, well, why not? And uh, so they allowed us to stage this event called the Expression Session. I think Damien Hardman, the current world champ from Rip Curl, came up for it and there was a bit of a deal and Anne-Marie Sparkman was there from Channel 9, one of their top reporters, and they made it look all sexy and cool. And it was really funny because they're talking to all sorts of people like Tim Vlandis, uh, which you never know what you're going to get with Tim when you point a camera at him. Uh, we're talking with Dave Kelly. They're talking with me. They're talking with Long John, Dean, Jeff, all over, the, all, the, all the guys. So that was, it was really nice. And uh, But that for me was the event that, that lifted it because all of a sudden we had a profile all of a sudden we've been on TV, the mountain were getting good coverage, the whole event went off without a hitch and it was just the sweet moment, I think it was just the sweet moment, then from there on the, the doors just swung right open and uh, they've never looked at shutting them because as we said back in the very early days, I still remember my first meeting with these guys in 1982 on a cold day at Buller, damn it, they're saying well this is just a fad, it's never going to take off, you can't be serious, I'm surprised because you're a good skier, I said look, I said, when this sport gets its act together one day, it'll probably be bigger than skiing. And they laughed and joked at me and gave me a really hard time over all that. But I knew somewhere in the back of my bones that this thing was possible because uh, it, it, it just had that DNA in it. You, you could see this sport could be good and could be amazing. And I think that's what took me through the tough days. And there was even a period where I plateaued and I just walked away from snowboarding in the mid-80s for a good two or three years. Had nothing to do with it. Boards hadn't changed much. And then a chance encounter with a guy coming into a ski shop I was working in at the time down at Bumps in uh, Melbourne. A guy called Jude Purcell, which is also a friend of Thor's, brought a board in to be fixed. And they didn't know what to do with it in the ski shop. I just showed up at the shop and I said, well, look, let me have a look at it. And I worked out a way to repair this thing for this guy and dropped it back to him. And he said, look, we're going up the snow this week and come and meet the boys. There was a little group in Melbourne who I didn't know any of them uh, except Thor and um, that introduced me to Frank and Danny and uh, Ali again and a couple of other guys and things and we used to go away and do weekends together at Hotham and Falls Creek and Borbor and things and uh, that got me back into snowboarding and I remember that year clearly because that was 1987 and then I just got straight back in hard. I started to do a lot of articles in magazines, Outerhounds, Slope, Australian Skiing, Fall Line, all these magazines we're all curious about this thing snowboarding so I became like Mr Snowboard for the for the ski media in Australia if you like so <laughs> Mr <was> Snowboard <laughs> I guess all of the media sort of stuff that really excites me writing all those articles did you just write about it because you were really enjoying it or I thought I'd give it one good serious last shot I could still see there was probably not much money in it for me, but something you've started so long ago, I just 
I just got a second win and I thought, no, I'm determined that no matter what, at the end of my time associating with this sport, people that have come across me or anything that I've had anything to do with will know what this sport is. And uh, so I, I just launched hard into it and I spoke to all the editors and they, most of them were fairly open and they said, yeah, cool. So we were getting covers, we were getting big feature spreads in all those big magazines in Australia and the Alpine newspaper that was going out. Um, we tried to keep it up and present ever present all the time and then we created our own supplements going to magazines and then the magazines themselves started with frank and chaba uh, they started snowboarders edge uh, i think it was 88 was the first year so i worked with them on that that was the first australian snowboard magazine sold in news agents and they also had this belief because frank had worked with thor with the snowboard riders of victoria that wasn't their, their their livelihood at all i think frank was a plumber or an electrician at the time thor was doing other things it wasn't the money that kept us going on this it was the determination to see that this sport got off on some sort of solid footing and kept going. And, um, you know, to see now the Australian champions that are in the sport, you know, I think that's absolutely wonderful, whether it's in border cross or half pipe or in, and, the, and the ones before that were, were achieving in moguls in freestyle skiing. I think there's a, they're two different sports, but there was a link in the attitude which branched through from the old alpine racing and the stoic nature of ski resorts at the time. And freestyle skiing had a lot to do with that in those very early days because it loosened it up again, it opened up other possibilities. And, and then snowboarding coming in the way it was coming in was a perfect adjacent to it, if you like. And uh, once enough people tried it, I mean, once you got over those first half hours of falling over and actually put your first couple of turns in and think, oh, that's how you do it. Oh, that's how it goes the other way. Then you're in business. Then you've understood it. And now it's just how, how good are you going to get on it? Like it was a bit more creative. That's what you're saying. Oh, yeah. Well, like in all those sports, because there was no really preset thing about what it is or what it was, people's interpretations came into a lot. I mean, you look at the clothing, the styles, the patterns, the colours, board shapes, uh, all the things they were starting to play around with. And then like it always does in every sport, and this is snowboarding's now in that phase two where it's industrialized and it's settled down into a few standard sort of design principles and they're just sort of variations off that all the time now so the real experimentation days are probably gone now it's all marketing and image you know and what people look like and how many people like them you know that sort of business so and i think every sport had it surfing had it skateboarding had it and snowboarding definitely had it where it had its outlaw times and it's those outlaw times that defined those sports for what they became and they're still the images and the themes which the sport clings back to in the coolness of its marketing to stamp itself you know uh, without rebels and without characters these sports would never have gone anywhere and every single one of them's had its share of characters and it's influenced the lifestyles of people now it's brands you see people wearing wearing around in the streets i mean for me to ever think i'd see a guy walking down the street in some sort of burton zip-up jacket it looks like he's never even been to the snow and was just like going to the moon you know that was way out there at the time. <laughs> it's funny how you describe it like being a bit of an outlaw because that's how Benny Wilson, who is like a big time, like Jackson local legend. I don't know if you've seen the movie Swift Silent Deep. You might have even met Benny if you've been in Jackson. And mm -hmm. he, when they made the Jackson Hole Air Force, he was described as a bit of an outlaw. So yeah, if people have listened to other episodes about the Jackson Hole Air Force, they would know exactly what I'm talking about. But they were breaking the rules 
to get the backcountry open and just stuff like that that created a lot of shift in the industry. Yeah, well, I think the, the dangerous thing which appeared towards the late 70s, early 80s and became a major factor and is probably the most overriding factor now in all ski resorts around the world is that terrible word insurance because prior to that, insurance, whilst it was there, wasn't the, the question. Now, when things are done, that's kind of almost the first thing they discuss. What happens if? Skiing went through very tough times too. Uh, and the, the, smart, the smartest thing ski designers ever did was sometime in the, I believe it was the late 80s, very early 90s, they started looking at snowboarding. And what they did was create two elongated paraboles for people to put on their feet because it's essentially what a snowboard is. And the minute they did that, they just completely changed the performance of what a ski could do, how it could function, and the sort of people that could get a certain level of uh, performance out of it. It opened up the market and people that weren't great skiers all started to become good skiers. And uh, I think that's a really nice thing, which not a lot of people credit to snowboarding, but I think that's the nice influence because I remember the times when we were refused by that industry, access, told we were stupid, ridiculous, this was never going to catch on, please stop wasting our time with it. To now where it's such a point, it's more than 50% of Alpine business all around the world in all the resorts. And it in, in fact influenced in a reverse way ski design and that changed everything for them as well for me i'm that's probably one of the things i'm proudest about with snowboarding is that it was tenacious it, it hung in there it kept going it kept bringing up the cakes it bringing up the new ideas the new designs and then one day bingo the light goes on and everyone's into it yeah i love all this because it's something that i've been trying to learn a bit more about I guess with having more a little bit more time this year learning about the history of sport and more extreme sports and all of the innovation and stuff that comes up it's very I find it really exciting maybe it's just the ski instructor in me that really enjoys it well yeah because you're obviously very passionate about what you do as well and being from Perth that's an unusual mix to be a a ski instructor at Jackson Hole and you come from Perth, Western Australia. So, <laughs> Yes, if I had a dollar for every time someone says, oh, a ski instructor from Perth, I might not have to ski instruct anymore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I get a lot of strange questions or funny and predictable questions from Americans in Jackson, but yeah, that's another story. What else can I ask you? What else would you like to tell me about? Well, look, I just think I've, personally it's it's been, a, it's been an unusual ride because I traversed all through the period of when skiing really took off in Australia. I was fortunate, I think, to be one at the forefront and at the very start with possibly a couple of other guys to launch snowboarding and get it going in Australia as well. And I think it's just been a really interesting time. Money-wise, it's not really represented much of a money winner or spinner for me, but by God, it's given me some smile time. All about the fun. How did you end up in France? That's what I want to know. I was living in Sydney. I'd gone back to working in tourism again with a couple of organisations up in Sydney, living at Bronte on the beach in an apartment, surfing, partying, having a great time, working, making reasonable money. And then I decided I'd had enough of all that and I was going to go to uh, America to visit my good friend who lived in Florida. And uh, we were talking about starting a sign business together. So uh, I had a garage sale and one of the people that came to the garage sale was my future wife, a French girl who was uh, on her way back home too. And uh, she ended up doing a detour and coming to visit me when I moved to America 
America and uh, one thing led to another and as they say the story goes boom I'm next thing in France in Europe and we went to Australia and families and marriage and back in France again and surfing and snowboarding because I live very close to the Pyrenees mountains here where I am in Osiga I'm only I think two hours door to door to the resorts the good ones probably three hours so it's very similar to being in Melbourne but the mountains here are better quality I think and I've got the sea at my doorstep so there's surf and waves all the time I remember when I came to this area for the first time and saw it, it was actually during a freestyle skiing competition back in the 80s came to this area and I, we took a day off from the mountains because they were so close we went to Biritz and I thought holy shit look at this there's these amazing ski mountains a couple of hours behind the coast and you're right on top of this insane area where there's heaps of good surfing and cool towns and spots well this has got to be one of the spots to put a marker on your map you know little did I know I'd end up back here so um fate in life has a lot to do with the paths you choose or the paths that choose you that's been good times I I've loved every moment of everything I've done with snowboarding and with skiing and uh, with my time in surfing and the people that it's enabled me to meet and the thing I think it always does to you is the next day when you go out there no matter how many times you've done it you want to do better than the day you just did before I can relate to that this is probably like off topic though I've noticed on your Facebook you have a lot of like photos of paintings are they your paintings oh yeah they are I, I do that to keep myself sane, especially <laughs> in these times. Have you? Do you usually paint, or is that something new that you're doing at the moment? Funnily enough, it's something I've done always as a kid. I always used to draw and colour in and get myself into trouble at school doing pictures of people on the blackboard and all sorts of things like that. So it's something that's always been in my back pocket. But since coming to France, I started just before coming away, but since coming to France, maybe it's the French air and the wine and cheese, I don't know. But uh, I've started to paint a lot more and I've decided to sort of stick in the area of surf culture and board culture for my topics. And I do them here and there. There's periods where I don't paint. I hadn't painted for years and years and years until about a year ago. And then I broke them all out again, the old oil tube, and all the bottles of acrylic and started getting into it. And I think in the last year I've done like about a dozen things again. So uh, I find time in amongst my other things to, to do it and uh, they're great. People say, how do you prepare for these things? And I said, well, look, I, can I, have a, I have an idea in my head of what this thing is in a drawing. Then the minute you start putting it down, it takes a life of its own. I have no idea at the end that it would look like that. <laughs> so that's, that's a bit the buzz too. The mystery. I really love that because I actually paint as well. But then I go, I will go quite a long time without painting at all. Yeah, I don't know. There's almost like a bit of an escape that you can have when you're painting and just how the colors flow. And I really like that creative outlet. And it's really interesting to me when I see other people's paintings as well. Well, if you keep your eye on my Facebook page, you're going to see quite a few. I've got another one called El Robo Surf Art, but you'll see all my pictures on my page. Um, and because I'm thinking of trying to probably put an expo together here in uh, in Osiga at the Sporting Casino over near the canal just before you get to the beach. And uh, it's a big old uh, Art Deco building where they do all the board shows and expos and things. It's a lovely big old room. Because I've also got a, an outrageous collection of surf, skate and snow gear. It looks like I've kept everything since I was six years old. All my old boots, clothes, pants, posters, films, boards. The surfboard collection is massive. The skateboards are the same. Snowboarding's getting out of control. All the ski stuff I've got's out of control. And I thought it'd be nice to stick it all together in a nice big environment, maybe chuckle my art amongst it and run it as a bit of a place where you can get something to eat and drink, you know. I think it would work fantastic. But uh, still trying to get to the, the premises part of it. There's no, I've got the gear. I would definitely drop in for a coffee. I'm, I'm a good salesman. You'll, you'll have more than a coffee by the end, but I'll probably end up giving it to you. So you're a winner anyway. <laughs> we 
we've been chatting for a little while and I'm so glad that we've got to have this chat. I did not think that when I posted on Facebook, when I first got home from America this year because of COVID, about people that might want to come on my show, I didn't realize that I'd be going on this road, collecting history about snowboarding in Australia. It's uh, quite a funny and really interesting road I've found so far. Oh yeah, look that's one of the wonders of all of this thing is that uh, you set off out the door today but you don't quite know the, where the track's taking you and uh, I think that's one of the reasons we all get out of bed every day is that side of life and uh, with all the technology and all the wonderful things around and less wonderful things around life still has that uh, that, that appeal of that what's going to happen today. Exactly. I'm really loving it because I think that there is a lot of history and the the snow sports of Australia that no one seems to have recorded just yet. So I'm enjoying recording it, getting it in audio form and it's fun. I'm enjoying seeing some of the photos that you're posting on that group that you've, well, not the group, the... First tracks, the origins of Australian snowboarding. Yeah. That stirred them up a little bit. Uh, but I wanted to get all these stories and photos down. I'd love everyone to participate left, right and centre on the thing. It's not just my story, it's a whole group of stories from people back in those days and that's the hard thing is getting them all to contribute their stuff because I'm not going to edit a single thing, whatever they put up, whatever they post, it's all part of it. And my idea was that I wanted to get this down so that the stories and the photos and the times weren't lost because when I go and some of these other guys go, they will go with us and uh, I think that's a bit of a shame, especially for the younger crew coming through that have grown up with these wonderful choice of amazing board sports that are so super on their game these days days that weren't like that back in the old days when we started it and that's the nice baton pass that we see is that we kept the force with us to keep these things going with the vision that one day down the track the next generations of kids would be in a much better place to make the most of it and profit from these things and 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 have different lifestyles and do incredible things in their lives. So that's also what I'm very happy about is is to be part of that chain. And uh, that's it, I guess. Yeah, I love it. Thank you so much for doing this with me. It's been a real highlight to my day, actually. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad you say that. It's, it's probably nice, nice, polite words. But no, I've enjoyed speaking to my age. Used to do and put it out there, and we help everyone sort of understand the, the context of all these sports that have come alive around us and where they came from. And uh, so I guess I thought, well, look, hell, I'm just going to put everything out there I know about everyone. At least some part of the story gets told, I think, correctly. As much as you can remember. I love it. And that is a wrap on my episode with Peter Robbo. What a chat. Some great snowboarding and sports history in there. In the show notes, I've attached a link to the Facebook page Peter has started, First Tracks, The Origins of Australian Snowboarding. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to The Mountain Cosmos so you don't miss an episode. And I would love it if you could share the podcast with someone who you think might like a little listen. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, And if you have time, please leave me a rating or review. It really helps people find The Mountain Cosmos. Also, go and give The Mountain Cosmos a follow on Instagram and a like on Facebook. All of these really little things really help me build a little bit more of a community behind my project, The Mountain Cosmos. See you for now.